I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we are your guide to classical music. In this episode, I'm joined by WETA Classical's Evan Keeley, and we're talking all about the variations on a theme by Haydn by Johannes Brahms. There is a lot to learn about this emblematic work, no matter how many times you've heard it, like Brahms' use of uncommon phrase lengths, his rich orchestration, a couple of new musical terms, progressive rock, and is the theme even by Haydn at all. This work is a favorite for many, myself included, actually. I love the color and just sound and timbre that Brahms brings to the table with his orchestral works. I think this is also an early example, Evan, right, of uh, theme and variations for orchestra? Yeah, there are not a lot of other pieces we can think of which are just uh, an orchestral piece where it's just theme and variations, and that's the entire piece. You might find a theme and variations as part of a larger orchestral work, but uh, this is a an example of that theme and variations where it's just that the entire piece is just that. And I always love when a, an early example of something becomes so emblematic of the form or the genre. I think this one also contains a rather important lesson, one that you can't get by listening to the music, but by rather knowing some juicy information about it. And that is, unbeknownst to Brahms, the theme here is not by Haydn. In fact, we aren't 100% sure who came up with it. Maybe a student of his, Playel, maybe, I kind of doubt it, but Brahms came across a movement called Chorale St. Anthony in a divertimento, which is just a small, light composition, and Haydn was listed as the composer. The problem was, still at this point, I think, it wasn't too uncommon for some publishers just to slap a famous name onto some music to just get it out the door. Yeah, it's possible that it was a, an innocent misunderstanding on the part of the publisher, or as you say, maybe they were trying to sell scores. It gives you a sense of how revered Haydn continued to be even into the 1870s, which is appropriate. Uh, but you do wonder if Brahms would have been as interested in this tune had it not had Haydn's name on it, even though that was erroneous. That's a good point, because I think that's where this um, lesson comes in. Don't judge a book by its cover. Brahms saw it, enjoyed the theme, and of course had the name Haydn attached to it. Without the name Haydn, I don't know if he would have used it for a theme for an orchestral work, especially an earlier one of his. Just um, It seems like he might not have done it, although he may have enjoyed the music either way. So it's just a great lesson. Well, don't judge something just because it has a famous name on it or or not. It is a wonderful little tune, though. It is, and it provides a fantastic jumping-off point for variations and everything we are about to hear. And Brahms does actually quote Haydn very late in the piece. Kind of um, clever, too, I think, so stay with us uh, for that. Now, this premiered in 1873 with Brahms conducting the Vienna Philharmonic, and I think we can go ahead and see, Evan, well, what was the one that Brahms heard, and how does he introduce the theme himself? So, here is that divertimento that we've erroneously um, given credit to Haydn. Here is that Chorale St. Anthony. And if we compare that to how Brahms introduces the theme... Thank you. 
already. I'm so in love with that. When it repeats or comes back in, Evan, it's so much richer and grander. A lot of the voicing is intact uh, from what was written in that Corral St. Anthony and what Brahms uses for the opening here. A lot of the voicing intact, and I love how he keeps the oboe as the kind of principal leading instrument. It has a very sweet kind of timbre to it. It's a wonderful evocation of the tradition of what in the German language is called the Harmonie, which is a small wind ensemble. Haydn and Mozart were composers that wrote a lot of this music. Think of the final scene of Mozart's opera, Don Giovanni. Don Giovanni's gorging himself at a banquet, and there's a wind band playing on the stage. So that's a tradition that I think Brahms is evoking. He's taking this tune from the 18th century with this wind band kind of sound. And with the pizzicato strings, as you mentioned, uh, it gives it a sort of extra richness. Yes. What I love about Brahms is his orchestration, how he chooses which instrument plays what. It gives all of his orchestral music, in my opinion, a sound of like a of like a rich, decadent dessert. It's creamy. It's got the right sweetness. It's not too much. And it always has you asking, oh, what is that? Is that a little cinnamon here? Is that a little nutmeg? There's always a little something else. And I think that's uh, here the cinnamon is that pizzicato on the cello and bass. Yeah, there's little subtle touches that Brahms is so wonderful with in his orchestration. I think of the opening movement of the German Requiem where the violins are silent for the entire movement and there's that sort of dark, rich sound. Brahms is a very, he's not a, he's not a daring orchestrator. He doesn't do wild things that make you fall out of your chair. They're subtle, but there's such a richness to what he's able to create with the voicings. And the phrasing, it's a little different, isn't it? We're so used to phrases being in groups of 8, 16, 32 in a large kind of scale. Here, instead of 4, 8, and 16, and so on, it's groups of of five measures, groups of 10 measures, uh, 10 measure phrases. Very unusual, or not so unusual, but really kind of atypical, especially for your principal theme that you're going to use to create a whole set of variations. That is, um, I find it quite surprising. It's not something I was totally aware of either. Yeah, I didn't really notice it for a long time. And so much of Western music is, as you said, the phrases are in multiples of four. And, you know, I've heard this piece so many times over the years, and it was a long time before I even noticed. That's a five-bar phrase. Dum, da, dum, dum, two, dum, three, dum, da, four, da, 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 five, dum. It's a five-bar phrase. It's an unusual metric. And the, the tune is so winsome, you don't really notice it right away. But Brahms really plays with that number throughout the set of variations. And it gives here, at least in the opening movement, such a perpetual grand march going forward. And I love this about music that we're, you know, when we're looking back centuries and how things kind of affect each other, there's been a kind of knock-on effect from this unknown composer, whoever penned this thing. It got passed off as Haydn one way or the other. Brahms believed it. He wrote this piece. And it's even brought influence all the way up to this piece that is called Hamburger Concerto. That is the name of this uh, music, Hamburger Concerto. This was on an album by the uh, Dutch progressive rock band, Focus. And that's one of my favorite things about music. It's just all these interesting details and knock-on effects that go on for centuries. I love the way we have these syncretisms in music, and why shouldn't a progressive rock band be evoking Brahms and Haydn? So, after this theme, we get right into the first variation. 
This one, the more I look at it, the more it's actually quite bold of, uh, of Brahms here. Usually you have a nice theme, and then on the variation, there's a little something added to it, a little extra something in the rhythm, something is developed a little bit to create a variation. Brahms almost goes in the opposite direction. He takes away a lot of the moving notes from the theme, and we're left with this bare skeleton of a melody, which is just a lot of uh, repeating notes. Yeah, well, there's this, uh, the technical term is anadiplosis, where you end one movement and then begin the next movement in much the same way. So you have this quarter note, bomb, 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 ending the theme. And then he begins the first variation with that same bomb, bomb. There's just those ah. sort of plodding quarter notes. You almost don't even notice, oh, we're done with the theme now. We're doing something else. So he kind of slips you into the variations in a, in a subtle way. Ah, what was that called again? Anadiplosis. Anadiplosis. I like that. And we already can tell in the first variation, there's not just repetition with this kind of note, but in the structure as well, a lot of things are repeating here. You see in the score, literal repeats to go back and, and play the, the music again. Right. And there's a repeat sign in both of these sections of the theme. And Brahms plays without throughout the variations. Some of the variations have those repeat signs and some of them don't. But we can get more into that as we move along. And these variations are, they are kind of short. Going into the second variation, now it feels like we're getting some rhythm added back in with that dotted eighth, sixteenth, dum, da-dum. And then it kind of repeats in, um, in, the, in the wind section. And also, a lot of call and response here. That is something also very characteristic of Brahms, especially his other orchestral works, his symphonies that would come later. A lot of um, one kind of short statement and then shorter or um, just kind of other statements in response to that in different sections and different instruments. One of the things I love about this variation is every single phrase begins with the same sort of rhythmic figure. Ba-ba-dum, doo-dee-doo-dee-doo. But there's always that ba-ba-dum, kind of like an emphatic, get your attention, and then each time it's a bit different. Yeah, and that moment you're, you were just describing, it's what reminds me of ballet. Some of my favorite moments in music have been working in ballet, and in a lot of ballet, it's a lot of repeating figures like that, especially with Tchaikovsky, for instance, and a lot of regimented phrasing because the dancing is, is, um, is choreographed, it's regimented, and in very, very strict groups. So getting these continued five-measure phrases, ten-measure phrases, which continues, um, it just gives me that kind of ballet feeling. And I think this has been choreographed uh, before, too. Well, it has a sort of danceable quality, as so many of these variations do. But the other thing you were pointing out just now was this sense of this rhythmic regularity, that uh, sort of fanfare, ba ba dum, that begins each phrase. It comes in a very predictable way, and Brahms keeps it from getting boring by varying it each time. Mm. This isn't Brahms's first set of variations um, ever. He had written several before this for the piano, and it sounds like he had some pretty um, staunch opinions about the form of theme and variations. Yes. Well, this is an interesting thing, too. There's variations in a lot of Brahms's work, and by this point, he had already written the Handel variations, uh, keyboard work, uh, the Paganini variations, but the uh, there's a gap of almost 10 years if you look at all the variations that Brahms has written, either as an independent work or as a movement of a larger work, uh, 1873 is the year he writes the Haydn variations, and there's nine years going backward 
uh, when you have the previous set. So he spent nine years not writing any variations, and then he writes this set of variations. And that's a fascinating thing to wonder what he was sort of germinating through in his mind as he had that sort of nine-year break from writing variations. Clearly a very important form to him. And we have a number of his letters to friends and colleagues where he's writing about variations. And there's this 1856 letter to his good friend, the violinist and composer Josef Joachim, who, by the way, was the first violinist to play the Brahms Violin Concerto, and Brahms consulted with him a lot. And in 1856, he wrote to Joachim, and he wrote, From time to time I reflect on the variation form and find that it should be kept stricter, purer, those in old times are very strict about retaining the base of the theme, their actual theme. With Beethoven, the melody, harmony, and rhythm are so beautifully varied. So Brahms, throughout his career, we see him being really aware of the past. There's that famous remark he has about Beethoven and walking in the footsteps of a giant and so forth. He's really trying to respect what past geniuses have accomplished and bring that into his own music. Also, you mentioned the... Handle Variations, another great um, set of theming variations by Brahms. You can see that although this is his um, first for orchestra, this is not something he's you know, not been thinking about at least. The Handle Variations sound so rich and orchestral in their sound. You can almost hear exactly how he would go from the piano to the orchestra. And in fact, with this set of Haydn Variations, he wrote a version for two pianos, didn't he? Well, it starts off as a work for two pianos, and then he orchestrated it, which is not something Brahms often did. He wrote a lot of keyboard music, of course, and he wrote a smaller body of orchestral music, and we'll talk about that a little later in the episode. But here he wrote the two pianos version, and then he orchestrated it. And yet you can't help but hear, even in the pianos version, there's a very orchestral quality, and you hear that in a lot of his keyboard music. I think that, as you said, the Handel Variations is a wonderful example of that. There's an orchestral quality to a lot of that keyboard music as well. And that brings us into the third variation, where it feels like the rhythm is kind of going, we're splitting the difference of the two extremes before. We're kind of more back in the middle. Still lots of great call and response, very Brahmsian in a way that we hear in his um, symphonies to come later. And this one is kind of like a chorale as well, isn't it? Especially at the very beginning. And again, there's that wind band kind of sound that you hear at the beginning of this variation. That's a theme throughout the whole piece. This one does not use repeat signs, though, right? We've Before we've had repeats in all of them. This one we don't. Right, so he preserves the repeat signs from the theme in variations one and two. In variation three, the thematic material is repeated, but there isn't a repeat sign in the music. You don't play exactly what you just had like you would uh, do with a repeat sign. Instead, he has a, a separate varied aspect there, so the, the material is repeated but differently. And looking into variation four, we can look at something that Brahms is specifically doing in the music, a little bit of music theory, and that is invertible counterpoint. Tell us about this invertible counterpoint. Invertible counterpoint is when you have two different things playing simultaneously and then you flip them. So you'll have something on top, the higher voice, playing one particular melodic line, and then the bass voice below it playing something different. And then they switch places, and the bass becomes the melody, and the melody previously becomes the bass. 
something Brahms does a lot in throughout his music, but in this set of variations in particular, he uses it a great deal. And it's easy as you're listening to not notice it. If you look at the score, even if you don't read music, you can see, oh, look, that figure is down here and it used to be up there. And he does this a lot of this set of variations. It's one of his clever little things that makes Brahms's music so delightful. It's wonderful to listen to. It's just very pleasing. And yet from a music nerd perspective, if you're a geek like me, you look at the score and you see these very technical things that he does, which are also part of the delight and the joy of his music. For me, Brahms is such a genius with all of these things. It's kind of like a, a Formula One car. It looks so pretty on the outside and it's so fast and you would just enjoy it. But underneath, it's some of the most um, complicated stuff you can imagine. But we don't have to know it to enjoy it, as you said, all the stuff that he's pulling off. Also, this isn't just, oh, you just flip the parts and that's it. If you do that it just have with anything, it's not going to sound quite right. So if you were playing a solo, Evan, on um, an instrument like a trumpet or a flute, and I was playing on the piano, the accompaniment, if we just switched parts, it's not really invertible counterpoint. It's not going to sound right or the same. You can only play one note at a time. Now I'm only plunking out one note at a time on the piano. So it's a lot more than just flipping them and you see all that um in the music as you said in the score you can just recognize it right away oh this is here now it's there now it's there it's like a picture being moved around yes well as you said the technical complexity is part of the charm whether you're consciously aware of it or not so this is the second of the variations that's in a minor key uh the variation two was the first one that's in b flat minor this one also in b flat minor uh, the minor key uh, related to B-flat major of the theme. And this is the first of the variations that takes the theme and turns it into triple time. So the theme is in 2-4, 1-2, two, 1-2. One, two, two. And this one is in 3, 1-2-3, one, 1-2-3. Two, three. One, two, three. Interestingly enough, Brahms writes the direction dolce e semplice in the score. We don't often see a lot of these kinds of things in Brahms's music. Uh, why does he say that? Dolce e semplice, sweet and simple. And I find that really fascinating. This is this sort of maybe uh, kind of a pensive, you might even say mournful minor tune. And yet Brahms wants it to be sweet and simple. Maybe he doesn't want it to be this very sort of maudlin, uh, you know, sort of dragging uh, funereal sound. He wants something that's very elegant, uh, very simple, uh, it maybe it's, it's almost like a slow waltz, like uh, you know, I think the the vals American, you know, the very slow three. Uh, you feel that, again there's that dance-like quality that we find in so many of these variations is very present in this one. And uh, you know, Brahms was not really keen on program music. Uh, you think of a composer like Liszt, for example, writing around the same time these very elaborate symphonic poems. They're painting a picture musically, which is a wonderful thing. Brahms wasn't as enthusiastic about that whole style of composition. He's much more into what we would call absolute music. There's no program. There's no story. It's just, just, it's just music for its own sake. And so when you have this dolce e semplice, coming from Brahms, who is so focused on just music for its own sake, it's really fascinating to wonder, what's that, what is, is there a deeper meaning there? And as we listen to this being performed, we may or may not have an answer to that, but we can just enjoy this sweet and simple tune. Yeah, it, I love that slow waltz. It does have this very 
intriguing ballroom aspect to it. And it's it's so funny because you're talking about Liszt and all of the extraordinary things he's depicting in music. And looking at Brahms, just him including Dolce e Semplice, it's it's like a it's like a opening up a treasure chest or something. What does he mean here by this? I'm wondering if it's also a part of at this time. Of course, there's no recordings, metronome markings aren't um, you know exact or utilized. It's still things are described in Italian, allegro, vivace, or, or whatever. So I wonder if this is a way for him to also really ensure that this one is played. Not too slow, but also not too fast, though, because when we get into the fifth movement, there is quite a contrast and a similar um, rhythmic feeling, I think. And the dolce, maybe including that, makes it tampers everything down a little bit to give that contrast to the fifth one. And with the fifth one, we're also back into a major key. And so far, things have been so very strict and very obvious. Downbeat, downbeat, you know, it's been very 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 clear here it starts to get a little unclear right it starts to feel um, like beethoven in a sense yeah i do feel like this is a kind of a nod to beethoven you think about for example the very opening of the final movement of beethoven's ninth symphony and uh, there's this marvelous fanfare one of the things that i find fascinating about that is i never know where the beat is i think beethoven doesn't want us to know and brahms is doing that i think in this fifth variation like where is the downbeat It kind of he's deliberately confusing things in a way that's so beguiling and so there's a kind of a a subtle and sophisticated whimsy about it. Yeah, and this is one of the shortest ones I think as well. I think Brahms and Bruckner did a really good job at this kind of Beethovenian um, fast "Where's the beat, scherzo" kind of sound coming from Beethoven. I think those two did it um, very well. Good example here. This is also the first variation that's in a triple time. We had the slow three earlier, but this is in six, eight, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six. The first variation that does that. It also adds to that dance-like quality. And again, it's part of what makes it hard to find where the downbeat is. And we'll get into the sixth variation right after this. Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music, is made possible by WETA Classical. Join us for the music and insightful commentary anytime, day or night. You can stream the music online at wetaclassical.org or in the WETA Classical app. It's free in the App Store. Going into the sixth variation, it feels like a nice continuation of the fifth, and we hear the horns as well. This is a classic, I think, Brahms hallmark. He loves the horns. He provides, I think, really some of the richest color in the orchestra. He he puts that in the horn section. And, of course, Brahms liked the horn. He learned how to play the horn, I believe, maybe from his father or something. When he was um, quite young, he really was infatuated with the instrument for a very um, really for the, I think his entire life he was really just a lover of the horn and he included a lot of solos for it in his symphonies too sure the slow movement of the fourth symphony is an obvious example mm. the horn trio is an obvious example and the writing in the horn trio is kind of similar I think to this variation and its emphasis on the the kind of horn writing that he uses here you can also hear I think a good characteristic of Brahms and that is using 
arpeggios outlining a chord. It's a little more hidden in this sense, but he does it. He does these arpeggios over wide ranges, over two octaves at times, um, really cascading down from the top or going up from the bottom. Again, that's something you hear in his other orchestral works. Yeah, this wide range, but it's spelling out the chord very clearly, and you really know where you are harmonically in those moments. Yes. That brings us to the seventh variation. I think... This might be both of our favorites. Yeah. Well, the, the sixth variation is a real crowd pleaser. I love that. But I get to this variation. It's just so, what can you say? It's so Brahms. Yes. You know, no one but Brahms could have written this this variation in particular. And it's so beautiful and beguiling. The, the theme is further away somehow. It's harder and harder to recognize that the theme is still present. But of course it is. And it's just so, so very beautiful. Grazioso is the direction that he writes to the score, gracious. Mm. And in the two piano version, there are grace notes at the beginning of these uh, phrases, especially at the beginning of the piece, but those were removed for the orchestral version. Yeah, I really wonder, that's, there's not a lot of changes from the pianos, the two pianos version to the orchestral version, but that's a very conspicuous one, and I really wonder why Brahms did that in the piano version and then it's gone from the orchestral version just comes in right on the downbeat without the grace notes interesting change subtle but but significant nevertheless I think a reason might be at least in my experience or opinion is that it's harder to write grace notes in at the beginning of a phrase especially here we're talking about the beginning of a movement when you have multiple people playing together, and especially at this tempo. Sure. Maybe he kept it for the piano version because the lack of timbre and um, contrast with just the two pianos, and here we have all the winds and, and strings to to do things with. And it's also, it's kind of hard, yeah, it's hard to start together like that. When you're conducting something to bring everyone in, there is one piece that I know of that starts with a grace note in um, a whole section of instruments, and that is um, Carl Nielsen's Fourth Symphony. Totally unrelated, but that's the only one I can think of that I've ever played or heard where there's grace notes at the beginning like that for um, an orchestra. So it's interesting. We don't know exactly why he did it. That's kind of my guess. It is more difficult to play if you have grace notes at the beginning of a multi-instrumental phrase, but then again, Brahms was never terribly worried about composing music that was too hard to play. No, a really wonderful movement, and it brings us to the eighth variation here. This is the third of the minor mode variations, and uh, I might argue this is the most uh, most Beethovenian of the variations or maybe like the Schumann fantasy variations that Brahms knew so well. Uh, the, in the way that the original theme is almost completely disappears, it's so transformed that it's really hard to hear how this, this variation relates to the original theme. It's almost more like a Schumann-esque fantasy variation. And yet the theme is still very much present. It's still a very strict variation on that theme, even though to a uh, to a casual ear it's harder to hear it this one is also rather short and i think it's an example of the great overall rhythm that brahms has it feels like with this variation number eight like we've gone on a hike evan and now we've reached this beautiful view it's so transformed from the trees and bushes or whatever we saw at the trailhead 
we have this grand thing. Now it's time to turn around and go back home. And by having this one being on the shorter side, um, being more diffuse with the theme, as you said, it gives him the opportunity in the next movement, in the finale, to really bring us home with that tune that we are that we're expecting, maybe more so in this movement. And he brings it back in the finale for uh, really one of the greatest, you know, kind of grandiose, rich endings of a, of a work in the orchestral repertoire that I've um, that I've experienced. I just love it. Well, and as you were saying, it, it's uh, there's this momentum toward that finale. And uh, this is the only uh, this is the only variation of the whole set where there is only one repeat. So there are two repeat signs in the theme, and you see that in variations one and two, and then you see it again later on. But in this variation, the, there's just the second repeat sign is the only one that's preserved, and that kind of gives it a certain drive to hear that last phrase repeated exactly right before we get to the finale. There's this kind of this uh, sense of maybe sacrificing length for obscurity, which it just piques your curiosity, but it keeps that momentum going into the finale. Yes. And the finale itself is a set of variations. I think it's 15 in total, each, as we've said, five measures long. And Brahms' comment earlier on the baseline being, you know, keeping it intact, I think that becomes clear as day with this movement because this takes the form of what we call a pasacalia. So what is a pasacalia? It's a form really made for theme and variations. It requires one thing, a repeating bass line, often called a ground bass. And this repeating bass line provides a consistent foundation for endless variations over top, which are, as we've already said, five measures long. The Pasacalia got its start centuries earlier in Spain, but it was still used like this in the 1800s. Even in the 20th century, it's been used because it's such a great well, form for theme and variations because you have that repeating bass line. You know what it's going to be. It sets up the chord progression. It sets up the rhythm and momentum to just, yeah, give total freedom over top. Johann Sebastian Bach's C minor Pasacali, an organ piece, is a very famous example. I'm sure Brahms knew that one well. Oh, yeah. And, of course, Brahms himself used a Pasacalia in the finale of his Fourth Symphony. I'm not sure if it's 15 variations or what the exact number is. You have the, the first section of the finale, you have 13 times with this bass repeated over and over again. And then in the next section, you hear it three more times, but at this time it's in the minor key. So there's that sort of dark quality there. And then we move into the final section where there's a, uh, we go back into the major. We hear the melodic and harmonic contours of the theme very clearly. And there's this, this triumphant sort of uh, there's this note of triumph with which the piece ends i think the third section is so triumphant because of how he treats that second section you were just talking about the ground bass that repeating bass line it shifts it's no longer in the bass they're silent and it goes to pizzicato cello It lets the bottom drop out in the sound without that low end. And that contrast leads to that triumphant sound, I think, in the third section, which he knows he can just make this as grand and, and rich as possible because at this point it's deserved in the music. And his use of percussion, too. He is such a reserved character when it comes to percussion. Now he's got the triangle. I think this might be one of the best moments for triangle in an orchestra piece. 
It's so easy to overuse that sound or to just have it be a kind of a cliche. And Brahms is so judicious, as you said, in his use of percussion in general and an instrument like the triangle in particular, which you don't see often in Brahms. In fact, it's hard for me to think of another piece that has one. But it's so effective here because he's held it back all that time. And then toward the very end, it's just this wonderful little added touch that gives a wonderful color to the whole sonic palette. Especially since... His orchestration in general, a lot of it's very rich and very dark. And then this brilliance of the triangle just, uh, it brings it home. But we did mention before, right, that Brahms actually does quote a piece by Haydn in this work. And that's right towards the end where he borrows a moment from Haydn's Symphony Number no. 101, the Clock Symphony. Listen to this moment here in Haydn's Clock Symphony. Now, we can hear how Brahms used that same line. It's so perfect. I don't know what he would write in place of that. It's like this line was made for it, but he borrowed it from the clock symphony. It just, it fits perfectly. Well, he had a great respect for Haydn as well he should have. And even though we now know Haydn did not compose the theme, it's not particularly ridiculous to suggest that the theme does have a kind of Haydn-esque quality. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, it's just a fantastic work. I love it from beginning to end. It's nice that it's on the shorter side. This isn't a half hour, 45 minutes or, or longer thing. You can listen to this, I don't know, driving to the grocery store or, you know, taking the bus somewhere. It's um, It just kind of fits well and it keeps everything interesting. And today, it's so hard to think. Brahms did not write a whole lot for the orchestra, did he? We, we consider him so emblematic of romantic orchestral music, his symphonies, um, and this work as well, and a few others, but there's not much more. The orchestral music that he did write is so much a part of the basic repertoire that we think of him as, as an orchestral composer, but the quantity of music that he composed for just orchestra is actually quite small. There's a number of works that have an orchestra in them. There's the four concertos, the two piano concertos, the violin concerto, the double concerto. He wrote a lot of choral orchestral works, the German Requiem, obviously. There's a lot of shorter ones like the Alto Rhapsody, the Gesang der Parzen, the Triumphlied, and so forth. Um, but there's not a lot of pieces that are just for orchestra. There's the two serenades. He, of course, he wrote the four symphonies. There are the two concert overtures, the academic festival and the tragic overture. And then there's this set of variations. And that's it. That is his whole body of works that are just for orchestra alone. It's really fascinating that he really reserved his creativity for such a small number of works in that genre. Well, that's all I have for Brahms' Variations on a Theme by Haydn. Evan, do you have anything else? Just another wonderful example of Brahms's endless inventiveness. He creates these very strict boundaries in the structures in which he's creating something, and yet through that he's able to create something which has such a feeling of spontaneity and uh, joy and wonder within those very strict confines. And that's a very definite characteristic of Brahms, I would say. 
Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. If you have any comments or episode ideas, send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a five-star review in your podcast app and tell a friend. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from WETA Classical. Classical.